Welcome everyone, my name's Adam Williams and you are listening to the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. Joining me tonight is half man, half mixing deck producer Andrew Glassford. And for the first time this year, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by the esteemed and wonderful Dr. Lucy Burke. I hope you're both well. Yes, very well, thank you, um, but very tired and quite hungry. <laughs> yeah, Andrew's just had his tea and Lucy's missed hers, so uh, they're going to be up and down this episode, I think, uh, depending on depending on the digestive systems. But uh, it's great to see you, Lucy. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to be, great to be back. Um, yes, I've missed it. So um, thank you for inviting me to co-host with you tonight. We've missed you yeah, too, Lucy. Um, oh, yeah. thank you. I'm, I'm good, Eds. I've, I've just started a new exercise regime this week. And, you know, like, new year, new me, all that shit. Um, and it's pretty tough. I've, like, been doing, like, hit exercises and going running every day. And okay. you know what? I'll be honest. I feel pretty good about it. Like I've not lost any weight, and I don't feel any any. I don't know. I don't feel buffer. I'm not getting. You know, the god bod isn't coming towards me, but I feel better as a person, and that is. You feel healthier, <laughs> you mate, know. and that's all that matters. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, my personality yeah. will get better as well. Do you know what? I, I want to tell you about my exercise regime, but right. I don't. Want, I, I don't want to make you feel bad, Andrew. <laughs> go, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> all right. So I've been doing 500 kettlebell swings a day. Whoa! Wow. <laughs> Fucking hell, Lucy Burke bringing the guns to the climate show. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> five hundred. Wow, is that in the garden? Uh, no, no, no. Just, just downstairs, and yeah, just a big house. <laughs> just in the house. <laughs> is is that in one sitting? Yeah. Jesus. Like, do you put a podcast? Sorry, but we'll start the real show shortly. But like, <laughs> do you do you put a podcast on? Do you listen to music? Like, five hundred kettlebells feels. It's well, saying. weirdly, it's it's coincided with me watching Treme, that you know the um, series about Hurricane Katrina. Oh right, so, no, so not, it has a climate-related um, context. You're, you're so, just <laughs> there pumping out your climate grief. So I listen, I listen to that. I listen to the soundtrack of that, and I do them in in, in you do them in sets of a hundred. No way! Amazing, yeah, yeah. Lucy. What a what a fucking trooper. <laughs> yeah, good on you. Good on you. Now, for anyone that's been involved in any kind of climate action in Manchester, you will have surely heard of Climate Emergency Manchester, a.k.a. CEM, a passionate, no-nonsense collective that are constantly looking at original ways to push mainly Manchester City Council in a more environmental direction. Tonight, we have two of the group with us, Marion Smith, who has been on the show before, and Pooja Kishinani. Last September, Marion and Pooja released a fantastic piece of work entitled the Student's Guide to the Climate Crisis, a handbook for climate grief, science and action. And as members of CEM, they're also involved in a campaign to get Manchester City Council to create a seventh scrutiny committee dedicated specifically to issues around climate change. Marion and Pooja, a warm welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having us again. It's really nice to be back. Yeah, no, it's good to see you again, Marion. Congratulations, first off, for writing or creating such a fantastic handbook. Yeah, it was really, really nice. Came out, I think, was it last September, I believe, wasn't it? it was yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, September. Yeah. So can you tell the audience a little bit about yourselves, about what you, you do in CEM um, and why you decided that this handbook was needed? I'm a final year politics, philosophy and economics student at the University of Manchester. And I think I started getting involved in CEM's work only sometime in April or May. So it was when the lockdown started, like towards the end of March, I just decided to join Twitter because why not? Why just 
So I joined Twitter and then I got in touch with like the CEM group and I just found it really different, like the stuff that they were doing. Because usually when you think about climate activism, it's always directed at like the international level or the national level. And you're always looking at like, you know, what's happening at the UNFCCC or like what are the UK government's uh, climate commitments. But CEM was focusing on local authority activism and they were scrutinizing the work of the council. And I think that's what really got me curious about their work. And that's when I joined CEM. I mean, I joined as a supporter and like I joined the co-group later on sometime in September and yeah, so that's just a little bit about me. So I have been in CEM for probably about like between a year and a half and two years now. Time's very liminal now and I have no idea how long I've been in anything anymore. Very true, very <laughs> anyway, true. Anyway, yeah, so I'm I'm also a student. I'm currently doing a master's in ethnomusicology, which is kind of like, um, it's basically like the anthropology of music is probably like the quickest way to explain that. But yeah, I did like, um, like a music undergrad. Um, so and it was in like my second year of, um, I think my undergrad or maybe my third year or something like that, that I kind of became aware of like, what CEM was doing through like a variety of circumstances I became like suddenly very very like hyper aware of the climate and how much of a crisis it was and I kind of was just looking for some kind of outlet to discuss it in some way and to feel like I could make some kind of impact like for my own sanity basically so then yeah I came across CEM I think by a series of Twitter DMs and that was kind of like how that started yeah and then yeah me and Pooja began working together I think pretty much over the summer at CEM we've been thinking about how for a while, we've been thinking about how we could support and kind of engage with more students. I was, for a while, like the token student of the group <laughs> um, before Pooja came along. And now there's two of us. Um, and it's very competitive. It's not competitive um, <laughs> at all. Um, yeah, so then, so we've been thinking about this for a while. Like, um, yeah, like, as I said, I live and work in student halls. So we we're planning on running some workshops with students because um, I'd like, kind of been thinking about for a while, like, oh, like, there must be other students who are in the position I was in where they were really, really kind of isolated and frightened about climate change we were going to run these kind of workshops um and it kind of all been okayed through like the various like bureaucratic systems it takes to okay anything um and then uh lockdown happened i think it was literally on the day that the lockdown happened or something like that that we were planning on running the workshop so that never happened uh, so then we were thinking about other ways that we could kind of support students in some kind of way um and mark put me in touch with Pooja, and i think we were on like a zoom call um and then I just kind of, I think like one of us just said to the other, like, what if we just like collated a resource for students that had like bits about like the university and maybe about the council and um, how to engage with like climate emotions? And Pooja was like, yes, I love this. And that was kind of how it started. And it just took off from there, really. So, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So the book, the book is broken down into three main sections. It's got climate grief for our mental health, climate facts and climate action. Um, in the intro, there was a section that asked, what is special about this guide? which seems like a pretty good question to ask, you know, tonight. So what is special about the book? When we sat down to like discuss this guide, something that Marion and I agreed on is that we wanted to like foreground climate emotions because we felt that whenever you have like discussions around climate change, like there's a lot about like, you know, climate science and climate policy. And that's why we include a section to like break this down and make it more accessible. But often what is just sidelined from climate discussions is just the impact that it has on our mental health and, and, and on our emotional health. And I think that this is especially true for students because you have millions of students who take to the streets and who are very active in the climate justice movement. But 
it's often not talked about how this is impacting our mental health. And so we wanted this to like start a conversation or just like contribute to the conversation around the emotions that we experience as young people. And that's what's special about this guide. It starts and it's like focusing on the emotional ramifications. I mean, I, I thought that was what was really, really interesting about what you've done. And, and we've, we've talked before um and, and I've, I think a lot about the role of emotion um, in relation to activism as well, like not not just as, an, as, a, as a negative, but as a really positive force, as, w- as one of the things that propels and drives people. But I suppose my question is, two questions really, one, one which is, you know, the extent to which you've encountered this, you know, despair and grief, because, because that they can be things that stop people and make it difficult to act as well. But also what you do with people who aren't, despairing or feeling grief in other words how do you reach people who who aren't impacted upon you know in in that way because in a sense you want people to feel something about the climate Mm -hmm. and it's like how do you reach the people who don't those are both really good questions I think for the first one um both definitely on a personal level and also kind of more widely I've seen this kind of despair like I experienced it like firsthand and I know quite I had like various different friends who did I think as well sometimes it's the process of like one can set off the other when someone's kind of like have you seen how much of a kind of issue this is why is this sort of not being always talked about in the world news constantly at every opportunity you know this is you know like has massive ramifications for everyone across the world and then so I think um yeah I've seen it in in lots of people even though my it has to be said that my background is very much not before being involved in CEM was not remotely within the climate sphere. I kind of didn't really even see it as, it sounds very privileged to say really, but I, because I was kind of like, I always taught myself that like, or thought I'm not really like scientifically minded. I'm kind of like artsy and I like writing and that kind of stuff. And I never, I never saw like, I always associated the climate change with science and I was kind of like, it's not really anything to do with, with me. Like that's kind of for other people to deal with. And I'd always kind of liked and been involved with various different like activism kind of projects and stuff but I'd never really considered climate to be like my thing when actually it's everyone's thing right um (laughs) so I guess like that was so I know for people and certainly people I was around who was in a similar kind of circle which was very sort of like arts based and humanities based and that kind of stuff um I think this was quite a common thing of sort of like oh like it's kind of like sciencey geography based it's not for us really so then when that kind of grief and despair does hit it's very difficult to know how to deal with it because you you don't know the facts about it either and you you don't know how to deal with it either because it's not talked about widely and you're kind of really trapped in this kind of net so yeah as a first answer yeah um if on on multiple levels uh, i know like lots of different people who experienced it in some form i guess the second part of that is a lot more (laughs) difficult to answer because it is really really hard to to reach people who don't who haven't kind of come to terms with this I like to think and maybe it's sort of like vaguely optimistic or naive within (laughs) it's both optimistic and cynical at the same time I think but I kind of feel like everybody is on some kind of spectrum in terms of acceptance of climate change or anger of climate change and that goes from literally like denialism right all the way through to like oh my god oh my god we're completely screwed because even people who are denialists right there are other people who haven't been educated properly or they're people who are already too scared that they're so like massively against it and then further along from that you have people who are like they have their heads in the sand about it and they kind of have some idea of what's going on but they still sort of don't see it as anything to do with them I was probably at that place myself kind of like 
oh, that sounds bad. I don't want to think about that. That's not for me to deal with. That's for other people, which is obviously a very privileged view, like in like Europe, you know, um, amongst white people as well. That has to be said as well, obviously. Um, and then you get further along to people who um, are obviously very frightened at the other end of the spectrum. And it's quite difficult because I, I don't know if I have all the answers to that. I don't know if Pooja does either in terms of how to engage with people who... It's hard. I don't think there is um, an answer to that. I think putting something like this out there, though, I mean, like the guide starts off by saying, like, being quite frank, because it's, I guess, mainly addressing people who've already bit like come to terms with this by saying, like, this is really bad. <laughs> like, let's not kind of, you know, like, like sugarcoat it like this is a really bad situation. But we are feeling this and you might be as well. So there's that. And we want to try and help in some way as well. But yeah, I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> it's my very long way of saying that. Um, I don't know if Pooja yeah. has any more. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I completely agree with what you've said so far. But the only thing that I would add is that I also think that it is partly the fault of, like, the education and, like, you know, the curriculum, like, the way we've been raised. Because we've had these conversations before. Marion and I have, like, spoken about it. And we just think that the way we've been taught about climate change, like, you know, in the institutional settings where we've just, like, given facts to, like, learn and we're not really encouraged to critically think about solutions. And I think that this has a lot to do with, like, how we collectively deal with the crisis. And even with with regard to like climate emotions I think a lot of people find it difficult to talk about it and just decide to just shut it out and like not think about it because we don't have a collective language to communicate with each other and so this handbook is really just an attempt to like you know say that okay yes this is terrifying and it is justified for us to feel scary but we shouldn't be stepping back at this moment instead let's try to like see how we can create a collective language and a space for us to have these difficult conversations yeah i couldn't agree more with what both of you were saying um I, and, and to kind of pick up on something you were saying marion feeling like you were going out of your lane to a certain degree when it goes from, you know, you were a musician, you focused on one thing and you were like going over into climate change and science mm -hmm. and science. It felt like you shouldn't be going there. Like I, I'm a, you know, a musician by trade too, kind of going oh, back cool. before, before I started doing audio engineering because um, I was a bad musician. <laughs> um, and there is that kind of, uh, I guess I want to kind of attribute it to capitalism to a certain degree. You know, there's the idea that you kind of niche into something and you stay in that lane. And then thinking sure. that you might even go somewhere else is like, well, that's not going to earn you any money, is it? You know, yeah, as, as opposed to thinking about structures beforehand, where this is probably a bad example, but like you know, Isaac Newton was a uh, a, a physicist, a alchemist. He ran the mint or whatever of London, and did, he like he played violin, all this other stuff. Is like people are full human beings who can attempt to do anything, and there is a language around like, oh, you won't understand this because it's statistics or whatever. So leave this to the experts. And I find myself a bit caught between like. You know, climate change is a really complex thing because we're looking at, you know, systems that are intrinsically like tied together. And if you tip something one in one space, you know, you can destroy something somewhere else. And it is really complicated. But at the same time, you know, I have to everyone's gotta have a say on it because it is happening to everyone. So, you know, my my brother, who is a van driver in Leeds, just thinks, Oh yeah, that's awful. As opposed to the professor somewhere who's saying, like, here's the carbon budget for the rest of the year. It's like everyone's going to be taken into account and it's weighing those voices that I think is like the, the kind of the trickiest part of, of all of these things. Um, I just I just kind of come back to climate grief a little bit. 
And I'm wondering if the distinction of climate grief versus other grief is um, important to you in, in like a, a practical sense. Do you think going, okay, you know, that like we're sat in the middle of a pandemic right now and the world is horrendous for multiple reasons. Um, do you think honing down, go, okay, climate grief is this and we should not box it off per se, but kind of go, okay, this is this and that is that. Do you think that is important to do or is it just a case of recognizing it as part of the the wider um grief sphere is what I'm, is the word i'm going to use right now to describe this sure that's a really really good question i think that there's um i think that there's space in the middle of kind of both of those parameters to think about climate grief if that makes sense because at the same time like i don't think it's ever a good idea to kind of homogenize different grief that people feel into kind of that it's all sort of one in the same thing right um because yeah like like grieving for like your environment or grieving for the future or something like that is it's still like a different scenario to grieving for you know a loved one or a parent or a friend and that kind of stuff that they're not the same thing and i guess but they, they are obviously very much related but they, they it's different forms of grief i think i guess but especially during a pandemic as well when so many people have you know lost loved ones you know in this hor- like horrendous situation that we're in as well, I think that is a very important distinction to have. I think yeah. that there's there's some mileage that kind of sounds like I'm exploiting something, but there's <laughs> there's, there's some kind of I I think there's something to be said for for comparisons to the two because the emotions that you feel are are kind of contingent with each other. Um, but yeah, I think there's there's always like there's so much nuance to be had in all of these conversations whenever you're talking about some kind of emotion about anything, especially something that's so frightening for so many people and something especially when someone may not have come across resources on this before as well for this to be the first thing that they come across it it is kind of a very careful territory to be treading so yeah I think it's definitely and to be honest that isn't something that we've considered um as much as we have in some in terms of like just putting like thoughts on climate grief out there into the world for people who haven't necessarily come across it before so I think that's going forward like we're we're making new editions of it as well um which I'm sure we can talk about later um and that's that's definitely something that I I think um especially like in light of COVID as well because obviously we wrote this in September it's now (laughs) whatever month it is now um the grief (laughs) has tripled since then yeah exactly so yeah I, I think there's there's definitely a place for talking more about that in this kind of ever-evolving context as well so yeah thank you for that as an observation that's genuinely very helpful to know but yeah thank space you. for everything within that well we were doing research for like uh the climate grief handbook i think we came across this one word called solastalgia which uh is coined by an australian philosopher i can't remember his name but what it basically encapsulates is just like grieving the loss of a particular place and i think it captures it really well because you're not just thinking about like the environment, but you're also thinking about a sense of community and like the people that you live with. And even just like, you know, you're thinking about human life, but also non-human life. And I think it like takes a much broader understanding of grief in that sense. So I think that, yeah, we can talk about climate grief, but there are also overlaps with like, you know, other experiences of grief that we might have. So it's a really tricky question, but like, it's a good observation. So thanks for that. Yeah. I think related to that is uh, maybe the antidote to that in your book is one, one of the interviews that you do is we have a Dr. Jennifer Atkinson, which is a re- which I really enjoyed. Um, she's written extensively on mental health impacts of climate disruption. And she writes, and I'm actually going to quote it because I think it's quite powerful. She writes, if I have to distill everything down to a single suggestion for fighting climate despair, it would be to take action. 
Action is the best antidote to grief. I always tell my students that it's action that gives rise to hope and not the other way around. And I really think that's such an important message. And I think it's quite a revolutionary message, actually. Um, and it's certainly one that I agree with. I mean, I've always, I've sort of been thinking about the climate for about a decade now. Um, and I've always felt when I'm actually making steps in something, no matter how small, but when I'm active and being proactive, um, it really does help me with the burden of climate breakdown, because obviously it can be so overwhelming. So I really think that is such an important message, not only uh, in the book, but, you know, for, for the movement as a whole. Um, but also it's, it's kind of double-edged as well, because what she says is when you do action, by default, you meet people, you, you get solidarity, and it also becomes, you get that community around it as well. So, it, so by doing action, it's kind of like a double win. Um, not only are you doing something productive, but again, by default, you're meeting people that are thinking like you and you can do things that are positive. So I really felt that that was such an important message in the book. Um, yeah, what's your, what's your thoughts on that message? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I think that speaking from personal experience as well, it can feel very isolating when you just think about like when you're just reading news about wildfires and cyclones and it just feels like you're too small and you're too insignificant and you feel very helpless. But when you look at like, you know, when, when you look at like a group or like when you join a community and you're able to like support one another, I think it's really good in terms of like, you know, making sure you don't burn out as a climate activist, making sure that you're not entirely numb to what's happening around you, but you're also like supporting others and being supported in turn. And I think Dr. Jennifer Atkinson's interview is like, probably my favorite bit of the entire handbook. I remember writing, I remember reading some of her articles because she runs a course in um, one of the universities in the US and she runs a close course on like climate grief where she asks her students to make like these climate grief kits like and she asks them to like make, be very creative and like think about different ways that they can help and support each other. And I was just reading about her and one night, like I think it was like late on a Saturday night, I just wrote a mail to her and she responded to me like on the very next day. And she's, she's just very kind and understanding. And I think her advice is really helpful. And it's something that we see repeated by a lot of people in the climate uh, justice movement as well. So you have like a lot of activists who say that even though things look bleak, when you 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 can't really just like have hope, you need to like build hope and create hope. And you can do that by like finding a support system. And yeah, like I, yeah, I, I think so. It resonates with um, lots of people, I think, because like that, I guess like if you, if you look in like a sort of like climate orientated space, right, like everybody that there's obviously going to be like lots of factual disagreements, I'm sure. Um, but everybody who's who's there is kind of united in a sort of, it's very cheesy sounding, uh, but everyone, there, there is a sort of, there is a unity in the kind of like sheer fear that everyone's feeling because I, I haven't personally come across anybody who hasn't been involved with with anything to do with like gl the climate crisis or climate like activism, I guess, for any other reason apart from being really terrified. Like that is, like I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how you you would just sort of like drift into this for for any other reason. You know, it's always kind of like there's always a certain amount of kind of like like not I was going to say like aggression, not like a personal aggression, but sort of an aggression of the situation that's brought you there um, behind it. Yeah. I, and that, yeah, for us, that was just such an amazing thing to have included. I do think it's very important to say as well, kind of as like another component to that, that we, 
in the final section of the handbook, which is focused on action, I guess, more broadly. I think that the one thing that kind of, not bothers, like bothers is the wrong word, but the one thing that always kind of concerns me, people just hear like, um, like take action and there's kind of like not um, any of a sort of like expansion beyond that is that people might sort of just assume that action should take the form of I guess whatever the most kind of like prominent or current form of climate action is right which you know for a lot of people especially like like in the year before we were writing was going to be say like the work of um, like organizations like XR and like direct action type stuff which definitely has a place and I'm not um like dispelling that or you know uh, but but for everybody that's not going to be something that that works for every one person you know there's there's so many reasons why you know like um that kind of like climate direct action isn't going to be you know appropriate or suitable or safe for for a variety of people you know in terms of like putting yourself up for arrest like um you know like obviously race is a massive factor same with nationality disability like for trans people that kind of stuff so we we also kind of thought in the second section expanding on what had been said about like taking action it's also really important to say there isn't one form of action that you can take like there's there's multiple forms of it and we 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 kind of we went through saying like there's so many different ways that you can contribute and you have to kind of define what action means to you and how you can make this work for you and there's no there's no one way to take action and it, it has to be what is right for you and for, for everything that you're dealing with so yeah I, I feel like as a kind of component to that those kind of two thoughts go hand in hand and trying to like help direct people <laughs> along the course of like processing things in, more, in like a more healthy way so yeah I'd like to ask a question to really in the um, book you sort of talk about the university and some of the things that are happening at the university and and you know there, there is a kind of sustainability agenda for sure in in higher education but what I'd really like to hear you talk a bit about or maybe sort of just imagine is what 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 you what in your ideal university you'd like to see happening in relation to you know kind of addressing the climate emergency you know you know the kind of you know the the, the, the you know your dream institution um because I'm really interested I think one of the things that's really struck me about what's happened this year and students being encouraged to come to universities when there wasn't going to be a campus experience you know that that people were being promised is just how much students are, are kind of relied upon in, in 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 particular places to consume in other words you know what you know so so there's what's happening in a university but then there's also the role of students as people who go out and buy you know, buy clothes or buy things in 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 a local community, and actually, that's that's one of the issues we probably need to tackle, isn't it? So, I was just kind of if you could kind of describe what you'd like to see happen in in universities, that would be or higher education or spaces of education, that would be great. That question itself, like you know, we we should probably like devote a whole section to that in like the next version of the handbook because there's so much that like you know we can talk about and like I'm sure like. Other students also have to say, I think for me, one thing that I would like to say is just more engagement, like, you know, with students. So I feel like the university, like they 
they have this like sustainability challenge which is like compulsory for first year students and it's seen as like you know the first thing that you do when you come to university and it's just like you know one short three year seminar where like you know uh, students get together and they talk about like what an ideal university would be like like you know a university that's completely green and that's pretty much it and i feel like after that your education about like you know your your engagement with like uh the urgency of the climate crisis just stops with that unless like you know you're studying a course like politics where like you're or like economics where like you know you're looking specifically at like environmental issues i think apart from that the curriculum does not really take into account that climate change is an issue that needs to be incorporated in like all courses so like you know you need to have a climate sane curriculum and i think that in order to bring that about you need to have engagement from students so that's one thing that i need that i think is like really necessary like especially now after the black lives matter movement the university has like you know come up with different schemes to like you know get students involved and like you know talk about building like you know anti racist curriculums but we need the same thing happening for like you know climate change as well because climate justice is a social justice issue and so i think that you need to start with the curriculum changing but also i think that there needs to be more transparency so in the process of writing the handbook we found it really difficult to like access some of like the documents published by the university and it was sort of just restricted to like you know staff members and eventually we wrote to them and we like you know had access to the documents but i think that if you want to be more accountable you also need to like you know publish it to students make it more accessible and just make sure that like students are critically engaging with what the university is and isn't doing because you don't want it just to be like greenwashing at the end so like they make certain commitments but they never follow through with them so those are two key things that i think an ideal university would have just like a climate sane curriculum and more transparency and accountability yeah also like more transparency is really key like i mean i it took what the university was still investing like 11.4 million into fossil fuels in you know like one like a year and a half ago like i remember going to meetings like like open meetings with like Nancy Rothwell both in like for CEM and like a personal capacity and like and it would be a case of sort of being like when are you going to divest this do you have any more transparency on is about like for is about this and it was very much a kind of the same kind of smoke and mirrors approach that you'll get with like the city council or you know with even like you know like kind of etonian ways of of you know <laughs> talking with people in in higher government right it's just very like oh we we're, we're doing things this is all great so you know like <laughs> which is just you know it's not it's not helpful to to anybody and it's not transparent and things they have now said that they've divested i, I don't to be honest personally at this point i haven't fully on a personal level investigated in terms of what exactly that means because i'm still suspicious um but i th- there needs to be more transparency in terms of that and i think as well what pooja just saying about um like yeah we we we're very much like all of our kind of beliefs revolve around the idea of like climate climate justice and social justice are overlapping and in many forms the same thing so i think all of this ties into you know the 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 concept of the the very valid conversations that are happening about decolonizing curriculums you know it's the, these these are not like two separate issues that are happening you know that different groups of people are campaigning for these are like these are very much interlinked and in some contexts are the same thing and they need to be considered the same in some ways and it needs to actually have students 
at the centre of more decisions that are being made. I think the point that Lucy was making about like the transactionality of everything to do with, with students is, yeah, you're, you're so right. There's so much like consumerism that happens and degrees are now seen as a consumerist thing as well. It's seen as, you know, like like a customer service issue. That, like I, I think that's the problem with COVID as well. Like all the stuff that's currently happening with students being like, I want my money back because yeah, like so many people weren't promised this. It becomes like, it, it's, it comes across as more as a customer service problem now than, than what it actually is, which is, an inherent problem with the way that tuition fees are in the first place, you know, and you know, it's and and capitalism and all the rest of it. And I could rant about this for five more hours, but but yeah, it's. I think it's it's a much bigger, it's much bigger than because climate change is much bigger than you know. So many people give it credit for it anyway. All of this is a much bigger conversation. Um, I just want to give a bit of time now, if I may, to uh, to CEM's most recent campaign. So uh, if we could just switch lanes a little bit, you know, regarding this uh, seventh uh, scrutiny committee. For those that are not aware of it, could you just give us a bit of background about about the campaign and why you think it's important? I can try and explain it succinctly for people who aren't aware of the City Council because City Council stuff is often kind of boring, you know, in the nicest possible way um, to to people who aren't familiar and to people who are familiar with it. But but the City Council as a body, right, is comprised of you have an executive and then you have currently six scrutiny committees. Um, These are for different there's various different things covered there's a children's one there's one for resources and governments there's um like there's there's six different ones and our campaign was for a seventh scrutiny committee that's solely dedicated to the environment so um it's that there is a committee that currently deals with um some environmental aspects let's say which is in um the neighborhoods and environment scrutiny committee but neighborhoods right covers everything to do with with like houses residences neighborhoods you know and like bin collections that kind of stuff um and that inevitably because people just day to day have so many you know issues with that as you would just living you know um that takes up so much of people's time that the environment is pushed significantly further down the agenda i think in the last year like especially during the pandemic as well where things got pushed around i don't know if climate change has been discussed at all in the last at least six months if not more than that but but yeah so our campaign was to have a scrutiny committee that was solely dedicated just to the environment because you know we, we all know that like the city council declared a climate emergency and um, lots of people were part of the pressure for that and their response to that has been you know if, if you don't even have a scrutiny committee as one of you know your your your, your body's below the exact discussing this then you know what are you doing so that was our campaign and we we did this through their petition portal which um obviously like change.org petitions that kind of stuff is not legally binding but um but this is because it's um the if you got more than four thousand signatures you'd get to have a debate at executive level um the motion would be put forward to the executive if you we didn't get four thousand but we did get above one thousand five hundred which means we have um we get to raise this motion to the Resources and Governance Scrutiny Committee. So that's happening on the 9th of Feb. So we're going to make a recommendation that they... Um, we, we, we're going to make a recommendation to them that they recommend this to full council. So um, although it was obviously <laughs> collecting these kind of signatures during a pandemic, was uh, we, we're of the opinion generally that if we... If we weren't doing this during COVID, you know, where everyone's minds are, you know, very understandably occupied elsewhere, we think we would have got the 4,000. We were really proud of the way that we ended up running a task force in, in trying to get these signatures. So we're still very happy with the outcome of this. So, yes, we have um, this this meeting with the Resources and Governance Committee on the 9th of Feb. So 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's certainly a, a campaign that we, we supported and do support. Um, just randomly, I was in a meeting the other day with a councillor who, um, and, and it came up the seventh scrutiny committee. Interesting. And, okay. Yeah. And the councillor's sort of attitude was, yeah, he sees no problem with, with it, its creation, but that people need to realise that it's not going to have any power uh, simply because it's the executive at the council that has the power. Now, I, I sort of interjected slightly and said, you know, you know, Climate Emergency Manchester know, know the rules around this um, and they've campaigned accordingly. They're not saying this is going to be the be-all and end-all with executive power. No, of course not. No. But what, what, do you say to, what, would, what do you say to that sort of answer, which is potentially what you may get? That's, yeah, that's a valid question. I mean... To say that, then you may as well say, like, what? what's the point of any scrutiny committee? Why does any of, like, what power does any of them have? What does the children's scrutiny committee have in terms of power? What does the resources and governance committee have in terms of power? You know, to, to say that, like, is, is kind of just to undermine the entire structure of the council, as far as I'm concerned, which, to be honest, I'm not against that, if you're going to undermine <laughs> that. But, you know, <laughs> like, think about what you're saying there, I suppose. I, I mean, you know, like, <laughs> we, we would love to be part of a conversation about, um, you know, wider reforms of the city council. It's definitely something we've discussed in the past. I don't know what the likelihood of that happening under the council's <laughs> current governance is. Yeah, it's obviously not the be-all and end-all to, to anything to do with that. And we, we're very... Like CM is always very conscious about making sure that none of the things that we put forward are seen as the be all or an end or end all to anything because nothing is when you're up against climate change, you know, like nothing is. So, but yeah, yeah like what's the point of any scrutiny committee? Exactly, and I and I think it, you know, regardless of the power that it holds, I think if it's not it's not the party itself, it's what you bring to the party. And so if you can, if we can create a committee that's that's really got that right energy, that's really pushing. In the right direction and also like you say you know climate change shouldn't really be sort of discussed a bit here and a bit there there should be a dedicated um committee you know that should just be the norm really um but Pooja, can i just ask have you um a cm been in touch with any other councillors and what have you had any positive feedback by have you been given any hope about this or this being created there have been uh, there have been people sort of in not necessarily people off the record but people in private who've said they would be in support of this. They don't see why this... Sh- like, they, they understand that, you know, if you're going to declare a climate emergency, there's a certain amount of urgency to that, and that reflects that. Um, I think the voices of councillors who... and of exec members um, who are against it are, are far more vocal. <laughs> um, I think that there is there is an element of... Um, it's, it's difficult for councillors, especially because... Um, this is through like a, a petition that obviously we as citizens have done. It's more difficult for them to publicly support it in relation to the petition because it's kind of it becomes sure. like a conflict of interest, I think. So um yes, there have been some And is the discussions within CEM of what potential uh, what you know, what would be the most positive outcome in regards to a committee? Who would be on it? Who would you want to be on it? You know, what would what kind of things do you think it would be talking about and pushing? What's the most optimistic vision? Uh, for this seventh scrutiny committee, we know it's not got executive power. You know, you've never said that it has, so there's no issues there. But from from what it can do, what's the most positive and optimistic view of this committee that you that you uh, that you envisage? I think, um, particularly in terms of who 
would be on it. I think that's there's more there's wider discussions to be had about specifically who I'm sure each of us would have our own opinions about specific councillors we would like um, in in chairing roles. I think as well there's obviously a lot of this is also subject to change because of the the council elections. I mean we don't know exactly when they'll be happening now. This might be pushed back to September, uh, but this is kind of like a, a moving process, right? Um, so I guess mm-hmm. in terms of specific chairs and things like that, it's harder to to say for that. Um, I guess. Generally speaking, the idea of a scrutiny committee is to hold the exec accountable. So for for the action or the inaction that they're taking, right? So so ultimately, like because there is there's a lot of I think I said this earlier, but like smoke and mirrors in terms of the council's very good at being like this is Manchester. We do things differently. We do things differently on climate when they they don't do that much differently on climate to other <laughs> places, you know, which are also not doing much. So if there is a committee with actually, you know, like like councillors who are genuinely invested in the environment and in you know, counteracting the climate crisis in whatever form that can take. And there are, we've spoken to them, we know them, you know, we have associates for that. Um, That would be the outcome, just accountability and a way of, you know, increasing transparency as well. And regular updates, transparency, uh, regular meetings. And I would really like councillors that are on there that have had, that like you say, have got some degree of, of education or passion around um, climate change rather than just... Mm -hmm you know people that it's their turn to be on a committee sort of thing so i'd love to see you know some sort of structure or voting that that allows progressive and environmental councillors to actually go on on committees that they are passionate about that'd be a start wouldn't it (laughs) i mean there's there's also like there's there's councillors out there who are really good at relating climate change back to their constituents as well which i think is often something that's really missing from conversations about climate change on a local level how how the climate crisis is affecting you know the most deprived people in manchester in the uk you know that's not that's a conversation that's so often missed and there are councillors who are thinking about that and yeah if there's a scrutiny committee that has this you know not just in mind but at the forefront of what they're doing that for me would be a success in what we've been campaigning for i i i've got a campaign proposal for you um, after this (laughs) so um in the 2011 localism act basically there is a mechanism for local referendum referenda referenda um, that you can put at your council towards specific stuff. And you could have a referendum on the changing of how the council is run from an executive committee thing to a, a more, you know, to an actual general committee basis of how things are organised. And maybe that is a step after the seven scrutiny committee that we could actually spread some power out across the council. I'm sure um, no one's listening to this, so it's fine. Um, I'm listening. It sounds good to me. Yeah, it um, sounds great to me as well. And you know, there's other councils that are run like that. I believe Sheffield is working on something similar like that right now, actually. So, um, but yeah, maybe something to think about. No, definitely. I think if you're concerned with, you know, like decentralized power from you know national government then you know <laughs> if you've got a centralized power within the council yeah, then yeah. why would you, you centralizing know? it somewhere else like yeah there's a certain amount of irony there right yeah this is definitely discussions that we've also had as well it's such like a big it's just it's such a big concept to approach in terms of any kind of operation you know um in implementing that but yeah um we i would say yeah like right back at you this is something that we have talked about and something that we are considering at various <laughs> levels into the future you know? yeah. yeah excellent Brilliant. And, and um, so the decision's getting closer. Uh, what date is it that the decision's being made now? Uh, 9th of Feb. 9th of February. Is there anything that, that, that the general public can do to support you um, up until the 9th of Feb? 
or is it sort of done and dusted now and you're just waiting for your, your day in front of the exec? Um, so we have a monthly we have a monthly meeting. So so normally this meeting is um, just to kind of find out more generally about what the events we're doing. But this meeting is on the eighth of Feb at eight pm, I think. Um, and this would be um, an opportunity to do the things we'd normally do, but also a specific kind of focus and a specific briefing about um, this meeting the next day. So if people are interested in this campaign and want want to know more about it, that's probably the best way to do it is a specific meeting where we're going to be discussing it and taking questions and that kind of stuff. Yeah, brilliant. Um, like I say, it was something from the start that I thought, yeah, this is a fantastic idea and uh, anything we can do to help in the meantime, we will do. Um, just circling back to the, the, the handbook. Um, so you've mentioned that you're going to do a, a new edition. Uh, and if so, what's what's going to be in this new edition? What subjects are you going to cover? So the first edition was targeted primarily at university students. So since both of us are like university students, we thought like, you know, the target audience should be university students. And that's why we have like a whole section on like the University of Manchester and what they're doing and like what can change. And even though like some sections of the handbook still are applicable to like, you know, a broader audience, like especially the sections on climate grief and policy and action, we think that that's helpful for like you know other students but also like older people as well so we think that we're going to retain some sections but we want to try to make the second edition more accessible to high school students and so that's where we're like you know going to try to like change some stuff and one more change that we're planning on is just like to get more feedback from students and to just include more voices in the handbook as well. So we want students to like engage with the content that we've written and we want high school students especially to like, you know, see what's missing, bring in their own ideas. And that's basically like um framework for the next handbook. So we're going to keep some stuff obviously because it is quite comprehensive but we're also like you know gonna add some more stuff maybe take out parts about like the university that are not really relevant and just see how we can like you know build upon this and just add more voices as well because i think that we need to have like you know more more voices especially from like working class communities and like you know people from like you know different backgrounds as well so i think yeah that's that's basically what the second handbook would be like I guess you could essentially say we're trying to decentralise ourselves within the yes. handbook. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, very good. So, yeah. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, like, just like to, to add on to that as well. Um, we're currently, I mean, aiming this towards high school students right now at this particular time, where um, teachers and students are facing significant difficulties with with COVID. Is obviously um, the timing could be better. Um, <laughs> so currently, um, our main aim at the minute is to compile people who, at some point in the next few months, will be able to help with this. Um, so if there is anybody listening um, in the audience who uh, knows of anybody who's involved within high school systems, I guess even like sick form systems as well. So there's like, you know, pupils themselves, um, like teachers, parents, I guess like governors as well. Especially we'd be really interested in hearing from anybody who um, it, like is involved with homeschooling as well, which I imagine will also become increasingly common with COVID as well. You know, like people taking their kids out of school for various reasons. Um, so yeah, we, we're currently trying to compile like a list of people that we can have these discussions with. So yeah, if anyone out there is um, aware of people who might be interested, we would love to hear from them. Yeah. Brilliant. No, that sounds really exciting. My personal uh, favourite was the dealing with bureaucrats um, and 
it's actually as reading it, I'm I'm going to be using some 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 information that I potentially need for stuff I want to be involved in. So it is really a comprehensive uh, handbook. But it's interesting that you're actually going down in age um, because I think this handbook has got a lot to give to to the movement as a whole as well. Um, so that's potentially something to look at in the future to make like a, a sort of a climate movement handbook. Sure, uh, yeah. As well, as well as an educational one. So I, I was honestly I was super impressed. Thank and, you so much. Um, yeah, so do you know what? Thank you so much for tonight um, and, and for coming and being great guests. And yeah, love the book, uh, love the work you do at CEM, and wish you all the best on the campaign. Okay, so this is the part of the show that is dedicated to the fighters, the healers, and the conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Uh, Pooja, can I come to you first this week? Yes, so I would like to shout out to Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, who are the editors of All We Can Save, which is like a collection of essays and poetry with center women's voices in the environmental movement. And it's just been this amazing book, which I've read like twice already. And I would highly recommend it to like everyone. It's just it's a phenomenal book. So, oh, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Send us the links and we will uh, we'll add that to the show. That sounds really good. Uh, Marion. Sure. Um, I'd like to give a kind of slightly more local shout out, I guess, to um, the Kindling Trust. We did an interview with them recently, which is currently on our website. Um, they work with farmers and um, health food providers, providers and policymakers um, to discuss and to challenge and subvert the way that the industrial food system works. Uh, they're currently looking into buying a farm, I think, on the outskirts of Greater Manchester. And yeah, they're oh. really, really cool. So. Would awesome. And a bit of insider information. We've got someone coming on the show to discuss that project in a, oh, in a few weeks. So, That's yeah, great. really looking forward to that. It's a friend of mine who just started working there. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. That's a great one. Uh, Lisa? I am going to give a shout out to Olivia Blake, MP for Sheffield Hallam, who I think has been doing some really good work on yes. the environment and is a really principled... Um, MP and I think it's great to see that so a um, big shout out to her and a smaller shout out to my daughter who <laughs> is, is is furloughed in London and has just moved into a flat which she is managing to furnish from skips and recycled stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, so you know she's doing her own bit in, in a small way brilliant yeah Andrew yeah it's mine this week is uh, for the Stansted 15 as they just had their sentences overturned today. Um, they were a set of protesters who were trying to stop people being deported from the UK, being sent back to um, various nations in Africa, even though they had, you know, they'd been living here for 60 years. They came over in the, in the 60s, in the, in the late 50s, you know, and helped rebuild Britain after the war. And it's just part of this disgusting, hostile environment that's been going on for the last, well, ever since, you know, Theresa May started as home sec, um, and it's carried on since then under... Pretty Patel as well. So um, justice has been served in in a little way because these protesters have uh, haven't been charged, haven't been thrown into prison for you know defending the rights these people had. So yeah, um, power and yeah, respect brilliant. to those guys. Uh, my goal is to um, long time supporter of the show, probably one of the first people to ever like the show and follow us on Twitter. Um, he's called Lucas Clay. And Lucas has done some some amazing work recently in trying to set up a website for us, doing some website design. Um, like I say, he's been with us from the start. He's not a fr- we don't know him personally. Um, he just like what, likes what we do, and he's support he's supporting us with the website. And uh, we just want to say really appreciate your efforts, Lucas. And uh, 
really excited about uh, the website. So yeah, shout out to Lucas. Okay, thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you will join us again next week. Take care, everyone.